Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we salute and talk to Alyssa Court. Alyssa is the executive director of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. She is the author of four nonfiction books and two books of poetry. The Economic Hardship Pro- uh, Reporting Project funds and co-publishes reporting, supporting independent journalists who do stories that counteract typical narratives, all related to inequality. It can be found at economichardship.org. Hi, Alyssa. Oh, hey there, Mark. Thanks for uh, joining us. Uh, my first question would simply be our usual first question on this podcast, your journalism origin story. Oh, yes. Well, um, I started out being mostly a re- reviewer. So my early pieces were for The Village Voice when I was really young, when I was like 20 or 21. And I was doing book reviews and film reviews and kind of criticism. And uh, when I was really young, I went to Columbia Journalism School and I just wanted to somehow combine my love of criticism and critical thinking with hard hitting immersive reporting. And so I started, that's what I sort of followed. I followed a synthesis of those two things. I wrote a book called Branded 20 years ago, close to 20 years ago, uh, The Buying and Selling of Teenagers, Branded the Buying and Selling of Teenagers. And, you know, so that was probably in my late 20s, I was working on that. And that I, I sort of marked that as the moment where I really sort of became myself as a reporter and a, and a critic. And since then, I've, I've done a lot of different things, including Economic Hardship Reporting Project, which we're going to talk about today. Is there anything in your upbringing that lends itself to telling stories? And I ask that knowing that you and I went to the same high school, close to the same time, and that there were some memorable teachers there. <laughs> yeah, so we went to Stives in high school, Sty as it was called, it's probably still, when it was on 15th Street, um, I lived in, I grew up in the East Village, I'd walk to school in the 80s, which was like late 80s, it was pretty awesome and amazing then, uh, I probably spent a lot more time playing hacky sack in the park than you did, am I right, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> yep, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was a bit of a, I don't know, maybe not a slacker, but I guess, you, you know, kind of an arty kid, maybe, Um and yeah, I think what lends itself to telling stories was, well, my grandmother was Russian and uh, pretty like, like like a character in a Chekhov novel, like kind of wild and tempestuous. And my other grandparents were first generation. Also, they were uh, shoe, shoe sales people and shoemakers. I think there's something about spending a lot of time with that generation that lends itself to telling stories, especially about work and labor. Uh, you know, unglamorous, but, you know, earthy and to me sort of riveting stories, even if there were stories that they told me about how they made a shoe or what made a good shoe. (laughs) I'll never forget. You know, I I, I remember as a kid, I would be playing and sometimes with the shoe horns, the shoe polishing materials and the, and the lasts and the whatever the shoe expander, you know, I forget what they're called or the shoe, I guess it's where you stretch a shoe out. Like on the floor. And that that having had that kind of rootedness and another kind of experience than being of the professional managerial class, the the reporting class, um, I I think has been really good for me as a person. And we should note too that uh, Frank McCourt is someone who's a big influence on your work. Yeah. So Frank was my teacher in high school. Um, and I think I was interviewed by the Times for his, when he died. And I, I feel like I want to, re, you know, redo 
my quote because it was like he told the same stories over and over again which sounded almost like Seinfeld like a backhanded like all he did was tell the same stories <laughs> but they were incredible stories I mean it, they were like uh rollicking they were Angela's ashes what would become the memoir slash I think it's an I don't I forget if he defines it as a memoir or a novel, but you know, it became the the books that he wrote. He basically told them to us in high school. And I was a freshman, but I'd skipped a grade. So I was 13, and I was like by far the littlest kid in the class. And I pushed my way into this field with juniors and seniors. And he just he saw something in me. And I he used to write incredibly nice stuff on my papers. And I felt like that was really one of the beginnings for me as of being a storyteller. So I briefly explained what the project is. Can you give a, a more practical description of like day to day? What is the economic hardship reporting project? The economic hardship reporting project was started by the late Barbara Ehrenreich, who is one of the greatest critics and reporters of the kind we're discussing, like a of poverty, of inequality, of you know women's work and struggle this country has seen. And she decided to start this thing in 2011 because she saw that only the rich were writing about poverty and she wanted to change that. She wanted to make sure that middle-class people and working-class people could stay in the profession. You know, because this was not, as you know, journalism is not, was a profession where people, once they, they didn't always have to have college degrees, right? This was this is a new invention that you have to be David Brooks to <laughs> participate, <laughs> right? So she really wanted to make sure that these voices continued to be part of the mainstream media and they continued to report and that people in these publications, these traditional publications, continued to publish this kind of work. So that was how it started. And I took it over really early on. Um, and it's become this, I think, uh, I hope, uh, you know, a source of news, but also a source of care for a lot of reporters who would otherwise not be able to do their work. Let me run through a few different examples of of pieces that the project has done. You can comment on these if you like. There's a collaboration with the Salt Lake Tribune on tax money going to cleaning homeless encampments, but advocates say the money should have been spent on housing and social services. There are a number of pieces with Teen Vogue, one on Roe versus Wade, uh, one on students deciding where to go to college, one related to Juneteenth and reparations, and then with The Guardian, a series of comics about the water in Memphis and how toxic waste is potentially ruining it. We've actually had a guest on uh, to talk about some environmental uh, issues in Memphis in the past. Um, there are other ones, too, that are smaller. It doesn't necessarily have to be a large organization that you've partnered with. I saw one in a newspaper in Erie, Pennsylvania. I've also noticed that homelessness is a big theme of the articles that that we've done. So um, how does this work um, Is with some of these? Do, does Teen Vogue or The Guardian, do they come to you? Do you conceptualize with a writer? How do things uh, work with this? Yeah, so there's lots of different ways. I mean, we often conceptualize with a writer, especially if it's a writer who's lived close to these experiences who might otherwise not get a chance to write for these mainstream publications. So somebody came to me who was experiencing eviction, um, who's also an editor and a journalist, and he's now writing and reporting his own eviction. So that was a story we totally conceptualized together. Uh, and we paid him up front, actually, so he's able to hopefully uh, have a place to live. You know, on the other hand, we definitely will get stories brought to us where people 
and publications will be like, hey, I heard about this organization or we've worked with them before. Can you help us cover the cost of a uh, freelance photographer? Or this is a new story about labor in Los Angeles that just came in, you know, we're a smaller site. We're only going to be able to pay the writer $500. This is a 2000 word story. Can you help cover some of their costs? So like that would be another method, right? And then lastly, sometimes it would be these big projects that we do with bigger entities like Retro Report, uh, where they sort of, we just gave them grant money and an idea and some sourcing and a little bit of input. And they basically did these big film projects by themselves that one was on PBS. Same goes with some other larger film projects we've done. Uh, we're now doing a radio series with Wisconsin Public Radio, um, and that's very hands-on. Uh, I'm producing with another producer there, but there's projects we've done that with like WNYC where we just were like, here's a check, make sure that you have photographers who are independent photographers or, you know, additional reporting on X or Y. And then they just done it themselves and we don't, we're, we're not uh, giving them editorial input, we're just giving them monetary assistance. So there's a real range of what we've been able to give. And sometimes, I mean, the most startling sometimes to people is when we've sent our lower income writers, our financially struggling writers, you know, we sent them uh, gift cards because they were unbanked, or we sent them a camera because their camera was broken, or, you know, cold weather gear because they couldn't afford a coat so that's the kind of stuff that we've done sometimes and or we've wired people money because you know they needed to pay for a hotel right then and there um and yeah sometimes they didn't have a bank account so that that's the kind of thing that that we've done that is un very unusual in the nonprofit journalism ecosystem so can you walk us through whether it's for one of the examples that i gave or another recent thing whether it be a written piece a video or a audio piece uh like a piece from idea to completion and uh, maybe explain how long it takes and the different things that go into it yeah sure so mm, this piece by bobby dempsey uh who's a reporter uh near pittsburgh and had a lot of uh, financial stresses herself growing up she lived in 70 different addresses but she's a fellow one of our fellows and she reports on things around being financially stressed uh that many of which have happened to her and her family personally so one of them was her mother could not afford a hearing aid and it turns out that if they're not covered or really not very well covered on medicare or medicaid at all so their, her mother was unable to hear through most of the COVID uh, pandemic. Her mother is now deceased, but this was obviously really alarming and really dangerous, you know, to not be able to communicate with her mother. And it was just a simple hearing aid would have made the difference. So she came and was like, I want to report on hearing aids. Um, and, you know, her first take on it was just kind of like a news story with a little bit about her experience, I was like, no, no, we need to go much further into this. So she turned it into first person, uh, a lot about her family, a lot about the, the feeling behind it, as well as the kind of condition of this, of the hearing aid, uh, the lack of hearing aids for people who are indigent. And then, um, you know, it was strong and we brought it to the Washington Post and they ran it. And recently the editor there did a tweet storm of his favorite pieces in Outlook, because the section Outlook of the 20, it was one of them. 
and it was you know in the paper and online. It's hard to estimate how long that took because some of it was the idea phase. And then some of it was like waiting for the editor because we co-publish. That's a because I can explain why we do that. It's a strategy to get larger audiences, but also a strategy to change mainstream media ideas around, you know, what writers could be used, what kinds of stories can be popular, who, who can participate. So uh, so it's sometimes we're dependent, right, on whether they run something or whether they have a news hole or whatever. So I, I guess that was probably two months, two and a half months, the whole process with, with Bobby on that. Yeah. And it's it's fair to say that the stories, they have like an empathy component to them that you want the, you just, you essentially said it, you want the reader to feel what the person is going through or what the people that are dealing with this are going through. Yeah. So I say empathy is my metric. I mean, obviously <laughs> lots of other metrics. We, you know, reach billions and millions of readers through all of our different channels, like yep. some insane number. If you look at Meltwater, which who knows, but but the thing is, you know, yeah, it's about first person uh, storytelling or reporting. So it almost feels as if it's first person, meaning the person has spent enough time with people or an issue to have a very deep feeling around it. So it's not just like, a, I, you know, checked in and inflation in Indiana, you know, yesterday, but it's like, oh, no, this person knows this area. They've been reporting from Erie, Pennsylvania, as you mentioned, or from Salt Lake City for years. So it feels inhabited in a different kind of way. Yeah, that, the hope is that that is what breeds transformation of attitudes, of policy. I mean, in the case of the Bobby piece, I can't prove it, but it definitely made it into a bill uh, about funding funding hearing aids. I can find it for you, but it's like it, it changed on some level. It was part of a push to, that has actually changed you know, American policy. So that's been great. So what are some of the greatest achievements of, of your group? Well, that was a nice achievement. Some of them are just like prizes, right? Sure. <laughs> I mean, we're, 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 we're as crass as the next news organization. And, um, you know, so we got a Murrow this year for something that a wonderful a podcast uh, about uh, veterans from uh, the forever wars that we supported. That was, writ that was created by a vet, a vet named Elliot Woods. And we got an Emmy for a film called Jackson that was about the last abortion clinic in Mississippi, the center, which wound up being the center of the Dobbs uh, Dobbs decision, and uh, that was a project I had worked on a lot. Um, we got a, like a lot of nice feedback for the work of Molly Crabapple, who's an illustrator who works with us. Like again, lots of prizes, and yeah, and some of this is just this, these kind of impact of say that piece about the hearing aid or language people use. One of our writers used a phrase called "copaganda" to describe uh, the way that police. Uh, you know, positive representation of policing makes its way through political language and I think even entertainment language. And he got on Trevor Noah. And I've been hearing the phrase propaganda around a lot. So I've been like, oh, well, we had something to do with that. You know, so like that, that's the, those are, those are a few myriad examples. And also we've gotten people able to write and live on their work or if not live on their work, just visible as writers who were living very close to the bone economically. I'm thinking of someone named Laura Yearwood who had experienced homelessness, who uh, has written these big stories for the Times, cover in, in a big story, not cover of the Times, but I think it was like a cover line story in Mother Jones. Um, 
uh, that was like 9,000 word story about some of her experiences and, and just spoke to a group of people, including Kathy Hochul, uh, you know, in the, in the New York, a big 500 strong audience. And when we met her, she was just coming back, getting back on her feet. She'd been um, experienced homelessness for a number of years. So I think like, to me, that's another way that we are measuring our effect, right? It's like, or Ray Suarez, who's hosted two seasons now of our podcast, had been having a lot of trouble professionally just because he'd aged out of what uh, people saw radio hosts, podcast hosts, of who they saw them as being. He's still amazing. He's doing a lot of work with us and he's getting a lot more work now. And I do think, you know, I do think us helping him be more visible and everyone seeing how great his work is has been helpful. You mentioned word choice. You recently wrote an article for the Columbia Journalism Review that had a larger theme to it, but one of the overall messages was about word choice, phrases, when, words you, do, you like, words you don't like, uh, unskilled worker, uh, one that mm -hmm. was problematic, and one you prefer financially stress, stressed. Um, what messages were you trying to get out in writing that piece? Well, I just think we need to start thinking a little more about the language we use around social class. People have become a lot more sophisticated around certain kinds of language, you know, language around certain groups, language around um, people who with disabilities, right? We don't say handicapped people, you know, these phrases that when I was growing up and when we were growing up in the dark ages <laughs> were commonly used. But I think with people who are lower income or poor, um, there's less awareness or less willingness to think about that. So one word that I have problem with it, Barbara Ehrenreich also did was unskilled worker. The more I thought about it, uh, Eric Adams had said it was some, um, he said something like low skill workers or low at a, some press appearance. And I just was thinking to myself, that is just so offensive. You know, especially these folks have gone from being essential, right? And frontline during the pandemic to being called unskilled again. There's gotta be a better way to describe people who don't have college educations, but are working really hard and doing things that are have a lot of precision in them. I mean, making a pizza or, I mean, even as Barbara pointed this out, like working at a department store, like knowing the different sections, you know, um, of a department store, different like coding for, for garments, if you're doing retail, like that's not actually totally unskilled. So that's, that's one example of a, a phrase. And, you know, I talked to people who uh, felt, feel alienated from the mainstream media because they see phrases like that. And they're like, you know, my husband's a truck driver. I, you know, I don't know why we have to call what he and people like him do, you know, at any honor it any less in our coverage. So, and, you know, there's a media scholar named James Hamilton who said, that income inequality generates information inequality. So it's not an accident. It's like poorer people are alienated from the media because they are referred to as things like unskilled or the homeless rather than experiencing homelessness, which is actually what, um, when I talk to people who've experienced homelessness, that's how they prefer to hear about themselves. One one that really surprised me and I would not have known about if I hadn't edited this piece was curbside delivery because it was written by one of our writers who had worked in a grocery store during the pandemic. And she's like, curbside delivery is me. I'm a human being. And I'm, you know, 
putting stuff out and I mean, working in a place that might have contagion all day long and putting stuff on a curb for wealthier people. And I don't want to be called just curbside delivery as if there's no human being there. And I realized, yeah, there's no human being in that term. It's as if it just miraculously came to the curbside. So this is specific to you. How do you look at the world differently from having done this job for nearly a decade and seeing essentially all of the different things that you've talked about here uh, compared to how you've lived? It's really changed me. I mean, in some ways it's, I mean, I feel like I can't, I can't quite live, even if I could totally seamlessly and financially become totally upper middle class, normal journalist person, I, I don't think I could ever forget some of these editorial experiences and the work that we've done, the people I've met and like what it means to feel excluded from the news ecosystem, you know, what it feels like to read newspapers, which are talking about gourmet restaurants for pets. That was a recent piece I saw <laughs> or um, <laughs> um, private dog runs. I know I'm just, I love dogs, so I'm thinking, but um, private dog runs or, you know, these incredibly fancy houses in, you know, New Mexico, you know, just they're routinely featured in major newspapers as if, and parties and things like that. And, you, you know, and you realize like, not only are most Americans not living like this, it's it's kind of disgusting to them. And it it's, it's hurtful and harmful to focus on these kind of people and this kind of experience when so much is missing and, you know, so many problems are unaddressed in this country. And which isn't to say, like, I think one thing I've tried to do is also assign pieces that are around like joy in working class life. So it's not just this like miserable, miserable cavalcade. Like we did a piece for the Guardian that was about like the beauty of a West Virginia town um, that was obviously pretty financially strapped town um, in like the coal region, but it, the photos were stunning. Um, I, we, I got the West Virginia at that point, poet laureate to write poems, documentary poems about the inhabitants. And to me, that was like a celebration. It didn't use the cliched vernacular of what, you know, West Virginia or Appalachia looks like, right? Um, so there's also, there can be stories of hope that are not feel good stories like here, someone won the lottery, but are actually about the everyday things that go right for people. You mentioned poetry. Um, you're a poet too. How has poetry impacted your journalism? It's definitely made me very interested in this form, documentary poetry, which is people reporting poetry. And um, it started in the 1930s with a write, writer named Muriel Ruckheiser. There's also a writer named, a poet named Charles Reznikoff. And there's like a bunch of other people from that period, uh, 30s through 50s, that were doing this reported poetry kind of thing. And it's come back in the last, uh, I got 10, 15 years where people, you know, interview people about guns or, you know, about low wage work and then write poems about it. Sometimes they themselves are low wage workers writing poems about their own experience. So in, with the project, I, I think we've done four or five, maybe six poetry projects that have been like this, where we actually pay a poet to go report something and then turn it into verse and then publish it usually in mainstream places, not in the traditional poetry places. And um, I don't know, I, I just think it's, my hope is that it can cut through some of the noise, just to try all these dif different genres, to try that, to try, you know, we did a little art show to potentially, you know, do billboards at some point with something that we've discussed. 
or lighting, just things that are not only on the page or on the screen, but have you know more immersive uh, components as well and are more surprising. Wow. Um, you mentioned the founder of the group, Barbara, a few times. Um, what I know that she recently passed away. Uh, what is her greatest impact uh, on this group? Well, it's her, I mean, it's her legacy in two different ways. She had a belief in writing with wit and uh, critical facility about class and income inequality and disparity. Um, so that part of her project continues. We assign to lots of writers, some of whom can pull that off. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tall order. Um, and then some of her project was going undercover. She went undercover in a lot of low wage jobs for her book, Nickel and Dimed. And the whole idea with the, that part of her legacy would be to have people who uh, not by choice have had those kind of jobs and are reporting from those kind of jobs. So we had somebody who wrote a piece about working in a potato chip factory. We had a piece by someone who sold his own plasma and wrote about that. Somebody who drove an Uber and worked in a strip club, you know, and so these are the kinds of stories that you can't, uh, you sort of have to really be there to be able to do justice. And that's the part of her tradition that we're trying to replicate. We just talked about uh, with another interview, uh, a uh, stud circle. Uh, yeah. It sounds like another version uh, of that. Very similar. Yeah. Um, all right. So as we kind of wind down here, uh, we my uh, former colleague on this podcast, uh, Emmy, used to always ask at the end, um, is there a hole uh, in coverage or a hole in the journalism industry that you would encourage young people to try to fill? Yeah, I mean, I think the whole is writing and reporting from the edges of America. And it, that can mean geographically, it can, majority of reporting takes place on the coasts and the news sites are on the coasts. Um, so it can be reporting from rural areas or from you know parts of the country that don't have a strong local uh, news infrastructure anymore. But it can also mean these kind of stories, the ones I'm discussing, like people who've had experiences that are not traditionally elite journalist experiences in their own lives that are give them a certain kind of perspective. So that I'd encourage that. And then also just like, I really like when people have voice in their work and that was a Barbara uh, quality. You know, she didn't see there was a line between being a journalist and an activist or between being a wit and a reporter, you know? And so I think like blurring those two lines can sometimes be very productive, right? To not hold back when you're reporting, in, when you're writing about your reporting. First, you have to do the reporting, but to do it with like flavor and panache and uh, visible persona, really, you know? And that's part of what I, I feel like we always need more of. On a personal level, you have a book coming in March 2023. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's called Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. And it's coming from Echo HarperCollins. So I've been reporting it for a number of years. I started it before the pandemic. And it was inspired by actually a lot of our contributors because we get comments and letters and uh, tweets at us and you know so forth in reaction to some of our contributors' work. And there'll be these very vituperative responses from commenters like, why is this person not 
why do they have multiple partners or why did this the writer not go back to college or why did they go to college and you know basically trying to blame the writer for their financial insecurity or their poverty and it was it was sort of startling it was so mean-spirited <laughs> and I mean of course this is part of it it's like twitter you know tweet culture and these platforms filled with trolls right but some of it was really ideological where you just felt like people were like stop your whining and I was like wow we really have a problem in this country when you can't have a piece published either by or about a disabled a woman with a disabled child who is surviving on thirty two thousand dollars and have people cruelly making comments about her and her son, right? So that was inspired it to try to look into what the, that ideology is uh, of the so-called undeserving poor and the deserving rich and the self-made myth, which is also honestly the American dream that thrums through these the storylines and how we, where to come from and how do we get the better of it? The Economic Hardship Reporting Project can be found at economichardship.org. So for the last question, uh, the podcast is called The Journalism Salute. We salute the project for its good work and you for yours. Um, can you give us another organization or journalist, perhaps one that you're not affiliated with, that you would like to salute for their good work? Okay, yeah. So I'd like to support the Debt Collective. We we use a lot of the people who are connected to them, including the woman I mentioned before, Ann Larson, who was worked in a grocery store during the pandemic um, and is a has a PhD and is a debt activist. And we work with them to develop some of their work. And they've done this incredible job of abolishing debt through organizing campaigns. And they try to cancel debt. They do direct negotiations with creditors. They buy and cancel debt directly. And they also have created digital tools so their members can dispute their debts. And I think debt is the 80% of Americans are in debt. So this is a crucial organization. And a lot of them are writers too, happily. So it's been kind of a seamless process to get some of their work developed. Which So that's been really great to work hand in hand with them. We thank Alyssa Court for joining us. Here's a clip of Going for Broke, a three-part series with the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, and To the Best of Our Knowledge, which starts airing weekly November 5th and is also a podcast on PRX. Here's Alyssa interviewing the late great author Barbara Ehrenreich, with whom she created EHRP. So many reporters have been taught or even forced to keep themselves out of their stories. Barbara felt the opposite was necessary. She wanted the financially stressed writers we worked with to pour their own emotion and experience into their pieces. Well, what I do if I'm working with a writer is I push them. I talk to them. It's almost like therapy. I say things like, well, how did that make you feel when you found out that you were being cheated by the company or whatever? until they get to the point of saying, furious, I felt furious. I said, so say that, find a way to say it, but put it in your writing. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at journalismsalute at gmail.com.